0: So here's how we're going to do this. Steve and I are going to ping pong back and forth. We're each going to name our book and then ask the other person some questions about why the book made our list, what we took from it, how it's impacting our life, how it's impacting our work. Our hope is that by the end of this podcast, y'all have a great reading list for the end of this year into next year.
1: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man?
0: Not much, Steve. This is my favorite episode of the year that we are recording today. So I am genuinely really excited for this conversation.
1: Brad is fired up and looking forward to a podcast. That's when I know it's going to be a great one. So listeners, you're in for a treat. Before we get there, though. This is actually, well, the reason Brad's fired up is this is the books episode, where we go through our favorite books of the year, and we just kind of nerd out on it. And for new and old listeners, you might know that Brad and I are kind of book snobs here. So before we get into that, though, guess what you can do if you like reading? You can check out my book, Do Hard Things. Brad's latest book, The Practice of Groundedness. They're both on sale for over 30% off. They're available now on Audible and crushing it on audio sales. You can get that wherever you listen to your audiobooks. So if you haven't yet, if you love books, what are you waiting for? Go check out Do Hard Things,
0: The Practice of Groundedness right now. All right. And with that, we are going to be talking about books today. So every year, Steve and I read a ton of books, and people often ask us, well, where do our ideas from writing emerge? And the simplest answer is from all the books we read. And I think what makes us a little bit unique is we try to read across genres. So as you'll see today, there's going to be a mix of books that if you just saw them on a list, it might appear kind of random, but hopefully by the end of the conversation, y'all will see the thread that connects them together. So this year, we've put together a list of 15 books. We've each chosen seven, where we had some overlap, which we did. We played rock, paper, scissors as to who got that book, and the other person got to select an additional book. So we're going to go through the books. They're not in any order Narrowing it down to our top seven each was hard enough. We didn't want to put even more pressure on ourselves to try to rank order amongst the top books. Just know that combined, we read over 100 books this year. So in order to make it into this list, these were really the books that resonated most. So here's how we're going to do this. Steve and I are going to ping pong back and forth. We're each going to name our book and then ask the other person some questions about why the book made our list, what we took from it, how it's impacting our life, how it's impacting our work. Our hope is that by the end of this podcast, y'all have a great reading list for the end of this year into next year. As Steve mentioned earlier, if you really like listening, that's great. All these books are available on audio as well. In some cases, we know the authors, but in many, we don't. So, Our whole mission here is to help you guys discover really good books. So with that, Steve, why don't you kick us off with the first of your favorite books from the year of 2022?
1: All right. And just to be clear, these are books we read this year. It doesn't have to mean that they came out this year. And I'm going to start this off by saying these are in no particular order, so not ranked from from first to seventh on my list. We're just going to go through it randomly. So my first book of the year, Hunt, Gather, Parent by Mickalene Duclef. I hope I'm saying her last name right. So this was a fascinating book because for those of you who don't know, I dabble in reading parenting books because I think there's so much information that relates to coaching because you know while coaching you're working with young adults or adults, there's so many lessons we can pull apart, and I love this book because what the author did is she went around to we'll call indigenous you know areas in uh, across the world from in the Arctic to down into Mexico and to other areas, and she looked at how the parenting styles differed from we'll call it the generic you know. Western view of parenting. And not surprisingly, if I'm going to sum this up, and she actually includes this in the book, is that the indigenous kind of old school method is really good at satisfying something that we talk about all the time on this podcast, all the time in our, 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 our written work. And that is uh, Desi and Ryan's self-determination theory. So autonomy, mastery, and belonging is that we really suck at giving that in modern Western parenting, but indigenous cultures are really good at that. So for example, I'll give you an example here is that um, in the book, she talks about how, you know, indigenous countries, I forget where it was. They kind of said, you know, there's almost more autonomy there. So there's more room to play. There's more room to like, The parent just doesn't jump in at every single moment that something is going wrong or to correct. They just kind of like let them figure it out to a degree, which kind of gives that space for autonomy, which we often don't, you know, don't inhabit here. So there's all sorts of good examples from looking at, you know, our overuse of toys and items to play, our getting rid of boredom, our... Over, you know, parenting or over coaching or over, we'll call it professionalizing of youth sports is included in there. So, I think there is all sorts of good messages that kind of sum up on as like, "Hey, like, chill out, let your kids explore, let them know that you care, be there for them when they need it, but like, we don't have to helicopter bulldoze or whatever to to you know raise healthy, happy
0: humans." Love it. This um, You don't know this, Steve, but I haven't read this book. And um, what's funny is about a week ago, I had a long phone conversation with one of my closest friends in the world. And um, she's also a clinical psychologist and she has two young kids herself. And she was telling me that um, her and her husband were really going through like a little bit of a rough patch in parenting. It's just hard, right? They have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And apparently her husband's therapist told him to read this book. And she said just how valuable this notion of um, the belonging element of autonomy mastery belonging was for their family and how particularly they took from the book that kids just want to be a part of things. Like they're wired to want to be a part of the tribe. So whereas in the past they would tell their kids, oh, don't bug me right now, or, oh, why don't you go play with that Lego? Or when we're at our most rushed, oh, why don't you go watch a TV show? They would instead enlist the kids to help in something, even if it was contrived. And she said that this has worked like gold. So I trust this person as much as anyone in my life. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try this. So sometimes we have a challenge before dinner in our house because um, Theo, when he has his screen time, it tends to be after school. And that can bleed up into dinner. And um, it can be a transition from like school to after school, chill out, maybe watch a show, play with Legos to it's time to eat. And that transition is challenging for us. So what I've started to do is I've started to have Theo, who is by no means capable yet of feeding our huge German shepherd by himself, do that with me. So now it's like, all right, Theo, it's like, it's time to get the dog's food. Can you help dad scoop it? And I'll hold the bag open and you scoop it. And even though 40% of the pellets end up on the ground and I have to clean it after and it takes four times as long, guess what? Now Theo seamlessly transitions to dinner. So um, I've already adopted that skill of just giving your kids something to do that's a part of what you're doing. And um, with a new baby on the way, I'm I'm already thinking about just how critical, I hope, that this will be in terms of, hey, Theo, can you hold the diaper while daddy wipes the baby? Or, Theo, the baby's crying. Can you run downstairs and get a pacifier? And um, and, and, and really just like continuing to give those kinds of tasks and realizing that actually that's exactly what the kid wants because he wants to feel part of the tribe.
1: Exactly. No, I love that part. And it relates to coaching because when you're looking at coaching, like, so much of it is, is like, how do you make people feel involved in contributing and part of a team? And sometimes that you do the same thing with adults where you say, hey, like, you're important, like, help me coach this athlete up or whatever, have you in the same role and you give them some, not only belonging, but some uh, autonomy in that, that sense. So spot on. All right. So let's, let's hear one of yours, Brad.
0: So I'm going to start with a book that is called Life is Hard by Karen Sataya. Karen was on our podcast a couple of weeks back, episode 144, so we dove deep into the book there. I'll do my best to do it justice and brief. The thesis of the book is its title, Life is Hard. And Karen makes a really compelling argument that what so many people get wrong is that they think that the meaning or the purpose of life is happiness. When in fact, the meaning or purpose of life is to live well. And living well is very different than happiness. Happiness tends to get tied up in a very hedonic adaptation. So feelings of pleasure, feelings of joy, feelings of contentment. Living well, he argues, is really about doing things that are meaningful and having texture in our lives. So if you think of happiness as a flat EKG, everything's happy all the time, living well looks a lot more bumpy, because there are going to be downs, there are going to be periods of loneliness, of emptiness, of despair, and there are going to be highs. And what he argues is that we shouldn't try to anesthetize or numb that away, we should fully experience it. And I think that where he's really done a good job in this book is making the case that it's not so much the really difficult things that suck, but it's society's like not wanting to talk about them or not normalizing them or telling you that you shouldn't be feeling that way. So he uses grief as an example. And grief is arguably the worst, particularly if it's a very close person, a partner, or a child, you name it. Fortunately, I haven't lost a partner or a child, so I truly can't imagine. But what Sataya argues is that while grief is going to suck regardless, what makes it suck more is that we don't talk about it. And we can't be open about it. And he argues that we should redefine life—not to be happy, not to pretend we're happy, but to live well. And a part of living well is being able to wrestle with these things in community. The second part about this book that I loved, and I know long-term listeners and fans of our show will love, is just a fascinating philosophical look at the difference between process and outcome, or what Satya, in philosophical terms, calls the difference between telic and atelic activities, and I think about this topic all the time, and I'll tell you, I probably haven't read eight pages of a book that resonate more with me than his discussion on process versus outcome from a philosophical lens. So I think that um, this is really a a wonderful book for everyone. I couldn't recommend it more highly enough, and that's why it's on the list. Love it.
1: So if you're interested in that one, not only check out the book, but as Brad said, check out brad's interview with the author which uh was a really good episode and i'm gonna tie this to i'm gonna bump another one of my books up that i was going to talk about because i think it gets at exactly what life is hard gets at as well is the transformative self by jack bauer and although i haven't read life is hard yet it is on my list what i hear in the description and the conversation you had with uh Author is a lot of similar themes to the transformative self, and I should warn that this book is like I don't know, it's like six hundred pages, and it's a research back book, so it's not popular press. So only go into this one if you really want to go deep. But what it gets at is exactly uh, you know the same idea that that Satya got at there is like differentiating a happy life versus a life well lived or whatever have you and. The Transformative Self, the author Jack Bauer says, almost differentiates it into you can have a happy life, a meaningful life, or a psychologically rich life. And a happy life is often tied to kind of positive affect, right? Meaning life is like subjective meaning, meaningfulness, all that purpose. And a psychologically rich life is, I think, what sets, Satya Sataya would say is the, the life is hard aspect, which is doing psychologically rich things, which is experiences that challenge you, that like, you know, push your limits, that open up your perspective, that change your perspective, that um, in, embody kind of curiosity. And Bauer's argument is that opens up a, do- a doorway for perspective and wisdom. And most of us live on this, you know, happiness, searching for life side and never get to that perspective wisdom side. So again, it was a fascinating look, very research-based, goes into how, our, um, how the stories we tell impact, you know, what kind of life we're after and how the themes around them impact kind of our mindset and search for the good life, but... I found it fascinating. So I think it pairs well with life is hard.
0: All right. So in the two slot for me, although as we said repeatedly, these aren't ranked ordered. So really just the second book I'm going to talk about today is Quit by Annie Duke. And this was a book that Steve and I got to fight over who would have it on the list. And Annie, I won that fight. Um, Steve quit early. Probably read your book and realized that was the right thing to do. Well, all right. So... The big argument in this book is that we spend a lot of time talking about grit and persistence, and we don't spend a lot of time talking about quitting. And over the last 10 years, all sorts of people have developed evidence-based skills for how to really be tough and do hard things and grit and stick in there when the going gets rough. But we haven't necessarily developed the evidence-based skills for when and how to quit. And that's where this book comes in. So For those of you that don't know, Annie Duke is a former professional poker player. She, I believe, is a multiple-time World Series of Poker champion. We might have to do a fact check on that. It might only be one time. But either way, she's a world-class poker player. And um, she is an incredible probabilistic thinker. She thinks in probabilities. That's how she's good at poker. And this book takes that to the next level and basically says, you know, a big part of poker isn't necessarily knowing when to stay in, it's knowing when to fold and when to leave a hand. And the same thing is true in life. And what I really liked about this book is that first off from a 10,000 or 30,000 foot level, it normalizes quitting. And I've been using the word quit more frequently since reading the book. So instead of being like, well, when are you going to like transition or, you know, might you think about making a change now when I'm talking to clients and colleagues and friends, I'm like, why don't you just quit? So we shouldn't think that quit is a bad word. Quitting makes a lot of sense in certain circumstances. And then the second thing that this book does, which is something that Steve and I try so hard to do in our books, is not only give you like the fascinating kind of intellectual background on a topic, but also really concrete practices. And the one practice of so many that were in this book that I'll share with you that, um, that Duke mentions is to ask yourself, if you continue down the current course what is the chances that you'll be happy in three months? And if the answer is like zero, then it almost always makes sense to quit because zero is zero. And, uh, you know, it's like we fall in love with the devil we know versus the devil we don't. But oftentimes the devil we don't isn't a devil or at least not that much of a devil. Um, so I really like the book. It it, it also, um, it reiterates a thought that I've had and she puts it into better words than this. But basically like, Are you staying in something because you're prolonging the inevitable, which is quitting and you're just scared to? Or are you staying in something because you genuinely think there's a chance it's going to change for the better? So for those of you that are really good at grit and patience and persistence, this book is a wonderful counterbalance to round out your quitting skills.
1: So I like, as you know, as you said there, we fought over this one and I really resonated with Annie's book. Not... Uh, surprisingly, because it's, you know, ties in well with do hard things Where one of the chap one of the sections is on quitting. And uh, that's why, again, I thought hers was a wonder. It's a wonderful compliment for uh, do hard things or any book on grit and resilience. And I think such an important, valuable message. So I'm going to go to another book that I know both of us have read here, which is plays well with others by Eric Barker. And I really love this. So what Bart plays well with others is, is is it's a take on relationships. And that looks at friendships to marriages and seeing what the kind of myths around them are and what the latest science and psychology tells us is actually true. And if you haven't read Barker's newsletter or his other book, um, which I think was, what is it, Barking Up the Wrong Tree? <laughs> Barker has kind of a unique style in writing that I, I I really enjoy and is easy to to get through because it's, it's very kind of communicative, almost like we're having a conversation and he's just talking to the reader as if they're friends. And I think that comes ar- around or across very well in this book because he's just kind of taking on things from, you know, looking at uh something that we talked about in the passion paradox which is this idea of like love and passion and you know the addiction quality of love and what it looks at and it goes all the way into okay well what kind of friendships are transactional versus real and i think in a time period where we have way more transactional or kind of pseudo friendships or even relationships because of we live on the online world or the meta world instead of the real world. I think this book kind of hits home. So I really enjoyed it. I think it's worth worth a read, especially nowadays.
0: Love it. I'm right there with you, Eric. If you're listening, uh, great book. We know that you listen to this podcast sometimes. So hello. Surprise. You're on our list. All right. So the next book for me is going to be The Chaos Machine by Max Fisher. And this book is a sprawling look at social media. Now, I've read other books on this topic that I've loved, most notably Irresistible by our good friend Adam Alter and then Digital Minimalism by our good friend Cal Newport. What this book does differently is that it approaches the issue from the lens of an investigative reporter, which is exactly what Fisher is. So whereas Digital Minimalism and Irresistible are a little bit more of a how-to, the science behind social media book, this is a look at the big players and the decision-making processes that they have. And let me tell you, I thought it was bad, and then I read this book, and I didn't realize just how bad it was. And um, particularly of interest to me is that the offenders that we think are worst actually aren't the worst defenders? At least that's the case that Max Fisher makes with tons of good supporting um, reporting. And um, man, it made me not thrilled with Google and YouTube. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But I always thought like Twitter and Facebook are our cluster, you know what's, but it turns out that um, YouTube is by far like the most unregulated place to go get crazy conspiracies And the algorithm in YouTube is by far the worst algorithm. And I think that the comparison is, it's almost like, you know, sports like cycling and running, we immediately associated with performance enhancing drugs because they got caught and it's out there. But like, there are all these other sports that we probably don't think that it's happening in. Yeah, of course it is. And we're just blind to it. And I feel like with social media, everyone goes to Facebook or Twitter because it's so obvious, but they're like, ah, YouTube's probably fine. Um, but particularly in Brazil, I just had no idea how integral YouTube was in swinging an election for Bolsonaro. Um, so I thought it was a really great book. I also liked it because Max Fisher doesn't end by saying we should shut the whole thing down. He says social media is here to stay and it probably is a good thing that social media is here to stay because the potential for net positive is great if it can just be designed better. And the spoiler alert, although it's hardly a spoiler, y'all should still read the book, is basically, he says, like, moderation, all this stuff is important, but all you really have to do is turn off the algorithm and it already gets 90% better, which is fascinating because that algorithm, which we've written about extensively, it prioritizes rage for the same reason that when you're driving by a car accident, traffic backs up, not because the accident itself, but because everyone stops to look at the accident. There's something about our wiring that is just drawn to car wrecks, both metaphorical and literal. And social media just freaking preys on that wiring and serves up all these car wrecks and amplifies the car wrecks. And that's why if you spend a day on Twitter or Facebook, you think the world is ending. And then you go for a long walk and you realize maybe it's not that bad. So it was a really good book. And I like the optimistic ending because the rest of the book, it's clear like he is not a naive optimist. This guy is a bone to pick with big social media companies across the board. Yet he ends by laying out all the ways that social media could be better. So what you're telling me
1: is that YouTube is like the NFL, <laughs> and Twitter is like running, and we we blame blame running.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. That's pretty much the the message, and it 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 made me it made me more aware of the issues with social media on a broader scale. So we talk a lot here about mental health implications, particularly for young people, addiction, relevance, identity, status. And what Max Fisher does is shows how all those things get leveraged up into conversations that otherwise wouldn't happen in conspiracies that otherwise wouldn't happen that really affect how society functions.
1: Yeah, I think it's again, it's on my reading list, so I can't wait to check it out because again, a very pertinent and and needed book based on everything that's going on in the world. All right. So, next we're going to move from social media to The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. And what this book is is that it's in the title. It looks at the research around storytelling from everything from developing plots, to the dramatic questions to ask, to, you know, uh, meanings, endings, and all that stuff. But what it is, in actuality, is yes, he's talking about writing and creating stories, or whatever, scripts, whatever have you. But what he's actually talking about is the stories that we tell ourselves. So it comes across as if it's a science of storytelling for writing. But in actuality, it's how the stories we tell shape how we kind of see the world and like interpret things and like all that good stuff. And not surprisingly, if you've read my work, if you've listened to the conversations with Brad and I, I have, and even if you look at how I sign most of my signed books, I always say something like own your story or don't forget to write your own story. And this book resonated because it kind of lays that out in 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 clear um clear form. So I love this part where essentially I'm gonna find it real quick. He says that story, stories work because they allow us to dislodge and rebuild ourselves. And if you look at in the book, he talks about this and do hard things, I talk about this. If you look at post-dramatic post-traumatic growth, which is the more positive cousin of post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic growth occurs when something traumatic happens and it allows us to rebuild our story and to reconnect with things that actually, with what actually um, has meaning or purpose in our life and to try and integrate the traumatic situation into something meaningful or to integrate it into our life story. And if we do that, we have growth instead of stress. So this book, again, an interesting science-based book that kind of explores, you know, the research behind that.
0: Love it. All right. My next book is What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. And this was a book that really um, made me see the world differently. And that's a high praise to put on a book, especially as the older we get, the more locked in our view is. So I'm going to start with a simple thought experiment that William McCaskill poses. And at first I'm like, ah, this doesn't really like blow your mind. And then when you think about it, it's like, whoa, the implications of this are, are actually pretty enormous. So William McCaskill says that, Steve, if you're out and you're walking on a trail with Hillary and Willie, And you see a piece of sharp glass protruding, sticking up from the trail. What do you do? I mean, I avoid it. Do you just walk around and leave it there?
1: No, I probably pick it up. And why do you pick it up? Because I don't want someone else to step on it.
0: Right. Now, does it matter if that person comes 20 minutes after you pick it up? Or an hour after you pick it up? Or a day after you pick it up? No, it doesn't really matter because I can't predict the future. So pick it up. what McCaskill says is most people are actually a little bit kinder than you. And they immediately say they pick it up. Steve's like, I'm just going to go around it and not step on it. But I know Steve would pick it up. And if Steve wouldn't, then Hillary definitely would. McCaskill says, well, that is because we're protecting a future person. Yet, how come we don't think about protecting future people 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 1,000 years from now? And he goes on to argue that if anything, those future lives, in a sense, could even be more valuable because we'll have more technology to make life better then. So this book introduces two terms that were somewhat new to me. The first is long-termism, which is a philosophical view that says we have a moral obligation to protect future people. The second is effective altruism, which says that the best way to be kind is to do it in a way that is highly rational. So the most good for the most people. I was a little bit familiar with effective altruism, but long-termism is the view that really blew my mind. And I don't agree with everything McCaskill says, but I do think that it's a really thoughtful sound treatment from just a philosophical whiz kid on a big thorny problem. And everybody immediately thinks of climate change, and that's a good thing. But there were other fascinating arguments. So McCaskill makes a really good case that if you care about the world and you care about climate change, actually, you should be having as many kids as you can. Having kids is the most moral thing to do. And that kind of blew my mind because I'm like, wait a minute, if we have more kids, then isn't that worse for the environment, more consumption? And what McCaskill says is that if you look across history, what's more dangerous than climate change is stagnation and degrowth. And if we have degrowth, it leads to war. And if we have war, that... People don't think about like climate in a phase of war. They think about crushing the opponent and they use dirty technology and so on and so forth. So that's just one of many examples where my thinking was wrong and not like an argument, but like I I think that he is right because he's so hyper rational Um, where I don't agree with everything in this book is I think that it's easy to and he addresses this. It's easy to get lost in like, oh you know, I'm protecting future people and then kind of abdicate your responsibility to take care of suffering right then and there. So it's like rather than give money to my local addiction recovery center or food bank, I'm going to give money to a think tank that works on nuclear disarmament because that has a higher expected value in terms of future lives saved versus giving money to the food bank or volunteering at the food bank. And I think that that is the risk. Because there is so much suffering now, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And if we can help people right now, it's a hard argument not to do that. But I think McCaskill makes it as well as anyone ever has. Um, so that is my uh, my book. I, it, it's definitely like a, a mind-bending book, and at least it was for me.
1: I love it. I've heard uh McCaskill in in interviews before, but
0: haven't read the book. So it yeah, sounds like some smart. fascinating
1: stuff. Yeah, he's, he's a smart. smart. And it's
0: one of those books, same thing with the Chaos Machine where like you think you look at the endorsements and it's like both Ezra Klein and Sam Harris rave about it. So you kind of know like if those two guys who can't agree on anything are raving on it, it's probably <laughs> a pretty good book. <laughs> There you go. Um, I like That's a it. whole other episode that we could do, Steve. Like why, why can't those two guys see eye to eye a little bit more? Cause they're probably two of like the smartest, like public intellectual quasi independent thinkers out there.
1: And, and I would argue that they're far
0: more similar than different. Yeah. That's really, so, it's a great tragedy uh, that Ezra Klein and Sam Harris hate <laughs> each other so much.
1: <laughs> All right. So from that intellectual i'm going to go to another intellectual here one that is not as well known alan st Clair gibson who wrote the poetry of life and he is well known in certain areas mostly my area of expertise which is the exercise science world so for those who don't know alan st Clair gibson uh was one of the you know I'll call it innovators around we'll call it the central governor theory, but other theories as well that looked at, you know, exercise and fatigue and how it isn't just, you know, a physical thing, but a holistic psychological, physical, all sorts of things. We talked about it in our first book, uh, peak performance. You might remember it from there, but what I love about this is the poetry of life. So, Gibson, what he does is he's a very kind of what I'll call eclectic thinker. So he brings in science, he brings in philosophy, he brings in Freud and old school psychology, and just kind of gives his thoughts on a wider range of of uh, problems in today's society, ranging from the exercise running performance all the way to kind of like well-being and, and holistically relationships and all that good stuff. So, I don't know, it's not a very, I can't imagine it It, it sold a ton of copies um, because it's not by a major publisher or anything, but I really, I really enjoyed it. So if you're, especially if you're in the kind of running exercise science world, but even broader, if you're interested in, uh, I think a pretty deep thinkers ideas, then I would check it out.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of, um, I've never known how to pronounce his name. How do you pronounce it? Alan St. Clair Gibson? I believe so, or is it Alan? In any I don't event, um, I've always been a fan of his writing. He's definitely one of these guys that is um, like a polymath and um, can think across domains. So I'm very excited to read this book. It's it's in my queue right now as we speak. All right, all right. Moving on, my next book is Bittersweet by Susan Cain. So Susan Cain of rightful fame for her book Quiet which uh, came out, I don't know, when we were writing Peak Performance or before, so at least five, six, maybe even seven, eight years ago, that really put introverts on the map and was just like a a really beautiful book that combines great writing and great research. And she's delivered again with Bittersweet. And Bittersweet starts out with a conundrum that is um, a little bit less mind-bending than Will McCaskill's, but still really interesting which is why do so many people love bittersweet music? What's the allure of Leonard Cohen or Bob Dylan? Songs that are both really sad and somber and written in the minor key, but that also kind of make us well up with joy or a feeling that might be similar to joy. And Susan Cain says, well, there's a name for this feeling and it's bittersweet. And the rest of the book is an exploration on why this feeling is so important to our humanity and to living a good life. And similarly to Life is Hard, it broaches topics about how we lose so much when we think the goal of being on this planet is to be happy and to constantly be playing chords in C major, you know? Um, and a lot of what gives texture and meaning to life are the bittersweet moments and how can we make sweetness out of bitter? What I really like about Susan Kane is she is a freaking pragmatist. And she doesn't sit there and say that, you know, the loss of a spouse is bittersweet and we're all going to grow from it. She says, no, that that sucks with multiple explicatives. Um, But she also situates that in like a broader picture of this stuff's going to happen to all of us. So it's a book about coping with the hardship of life. It's a book about why we find the bittersweet attractive. And um, what I love about this book is, um, unsurprisingly, because it's something that I try really hard to do, probably not as well as Susan Cain in my own writing, is she combines rigorous intellect with a lot of like soulful heart in her writing. And I think it's very hard to do. And I think she's very good at it. I love it. She's a great writer. Again, I haven't read Bittersweet yet, but it's on my list. Also, an interesting story, kind of like ours, Steve, like had a whole different career in life before writing. She was a, I I didn't know, I knew she was like a business professional, but I had no idea. More comes out in this book. She was like a big time corporate law attorney. Oh, wow. um, Which is not what you'd think when you read her work. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah, there were some interesting surprises in there. She talks about her personal story. She talks about her. Quasi estrangement, or at the very least, very rough relationship with her mom, which I found really interesting. Um, so she was very vulnerable and, and shared a lot of personal details that were um, interesting and, and added a lot of um, a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, just texture to the book.
1: Love it. All right, so I will go next to a book. I know we both read from strength to strength by Arthur Brooks. And to give the quick summary, um, I really enjoyed this, but what the thesis of his book is we have two types of intelligence. We've talked about this on the podcast before kind of fluid and crystallized. Brad likes to sum this up in some more elegant way, but essentially it's our quick thinking kind of, you know, uh, ability to think on the fly Smart is Smart
0: Alec 24 year old doing a McKinsey and Company interview.
1: Yeah, so that's the fluid and then crystallized is just wisdom. And what Brooks makes the argument for and then outlines how to do it is saying, you know, we spend most of our career kind of banking on this fluid intelligence and learning how to master the our work life and the game and utilizing it but it starts to go down in your 30s and by your 40s starts to go down even more and then goes down for the rest of your life to a degree and crystallize keeps going go going up but the, so essentially he's arguing the things that brought us success in the first half of our life don't actually give us success in the latter half and if we st- still keep chasing things or the way that you know, things that rely on that fluid intelligence, we're not gonna A, have success, and then B, be kind of hot, healthy, happy, fulfilled human beings. So he really makes the argument for, you know, A, becoming aware of, aware of it, and then B, figuring out how to use that wisdom or crystallized intelligence over the second half of your life so that you can flourish and grow and, you know, find enjoyment in your pursuits and work and and life and all that good stuff.
0: Love it. And for those that are playing the growth equation drinking game, I have yet to swear on this episode. And Steve has said and all that good stuff four times. So the people on Team Brad are still with us and taking notes. And the people on (laughs) Team Steve, I hope they're not listening on their commute.
1: You know, I'm just all about getting our people wasted as they, they listen to the you know, past 40 minutes of Brad and
0: Steve talking. So I'm going to need a drink pretty soon here now. How many drinks have you had in the last year, Steve? Not including the two beers that you had at our growth equation retreat. Uh, Uh, Less than 10. There you go. Steve, man, doesn't what's the don't get high on your own supply and all that good stuff. That's that's what it's all about.
1: All right. Gotta Anyways,
0: got to keep it fun. So, let, so let, let's move on. Is that what you're say? Yeah. Let's go. Let's All right. Go. Sorry, Steve. You know, if anyone can derail, I am a if I am a pro at anything, it's at derailing a podcast. So, next up on my list is we continue to make our way through is Stolen Focus by Johann Hari. Uh, this is a book about the attention economy and how hard it is to focus in today's world and what it costs us individually and societally. And um, man, Hari is a very incisive writer. Uh, he has a very different writing style than me. I, when I read him, I just envision him being like angry. But it makes for really freaking powerful writing. And he has a lot to be angry about in this book. What was the biggest takeaway that I had from this book is that at a time when we need to be able to focus more than ever to solve all the complex problems that we're facing, to remedy William McCaskill's issues about future generations, we're going to need focus more than ever. Yet the economy is moving in a direction where the entire thing that's monetized is distraction. And you put those two things together, and you're like, "All right, folks, you're going to have a drink." We are up Shit's Creek, and um, I hadn't really considered it that way. Like again, you think about focus on an individual level, but you don't think like I can't believe that the planet is burning. And some of the best scientists in the world have lost their brains because they spend too much time on Twitter. And that's exactly where we're at. And Hari kind of sounds the alarm and says, hey, we need to protect our focus and we need to create an economy that is not based on monetizing our attention and distraction and novelty. Because if we do, we will literally, to quote my main man, Neil Postman, amuse ourselves to death.
1: Yes, another timely
0: book that
1: I think is very much needed, especially as we record this. We're literally, you know, at least one of the smartest, you know, richest people in the world is amusing himself to death on Twitter. So I, I think that you know everybody needs to read that book. All right, going into my final one or my number seven is a book that obviously did not come out this year. Came out decades ago, The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. And what it is, is it's the book form of a conversation between Campbell and Moyers that if you want to watch the, I think it's six hours of video of their conversation, I highly suggest that as well. I reread this for the first time and gosh, I don't know, since college maybe. And I just loved it. It just, I picked up on so many different things that I just kind of skimmed over as a 20 something year old who hated reading. And it just, you know, brought some things to forefront, especially around the power of storytelling and myths and all that stuff. If you live in Iraq and don't know who Joseph Campbell is, he's known for the hero's journey, the kind of inspiration behind the Star Wars story, all that good stuff, Um. I guess to summarize it, I love at the very end of the book where, you know, Moyers asks them something along the lines of, well, what is an experience where you felt like this feeling of, of feeling alive of like feeling your bliss or pursuing your bliss, whatever it is. And more, and Campbell says, Pen relays. <laughs> and for the listeners who don't know, penrelays relays is the giant track meet where, you know, I don't know, 50,000 people show up and go nuts watching high school and professional athletes run around in circles. And Campbell ran at it, you know, way back in the day, I think in the 1920s or 30s, and he was talking about just that feeling of feeling alive when he's in the middle of the relay and just trying to run down his opponents and knowing that he was capable and was was going to do it. So not surprisingly, anything that ties into running and explains some running to me is great. But even if you don't run, even if you read this book back in college, I think it's one of those timely classics that's worth, uh, worth a reread or a rewatch.
0: All right. And my final book is a book by Yael Schonbrun, and it is called Work, Parent, Thrive, it's the second parenting book on our list. So um, we went from never having mentioned a parenting book to two. And I think that's because there are, are a lot of terrible parenting books out there. And this year, we got two really good ones. So if you like The Practice of Groundedness, you will love this book. Yael takes acceptance and commitment therapy, which many would rightfully say is kind of the engine that The Practice of Groundedness is built on. And she applies it to parenting and particularly parenting for people who that want to be world-class parents, but also world-class writers or artists or attorneys or investors or teachers. And perhaps they want to be really good marathon runners or deadlift a lot of weight or learn how to knit and make pottery. And Yael agrees with Steve and I that balance is an illusion. It's bullshit. Take your other drink. And um, better than balance is boundaries and role clarity. And if it sounds like we're just kind of splitting hairs on specific words, we're not. One asks you to do everything always. The other asks you to be really clear on your values, when and where your values are in conflict, evaluate decisions, pay attention to what you get as a result, update and continue to live in alignment with your core values. And Yael takes this and applies it to parenting and how parenting interleaves with all the other elements that high-performing people try to balance in their lives. So another really good parenting book, Um, it doesn't give you permission to say to hell with it, but it also gives you permission to think about parenting in the broader context of your life. I think so often a trap that so many parents fall into, myself included, is you go on like Baby Island, which... For those that don't have babies, it's basically like you have this little baby and the rest of your life just shuts down. Your friendships, your work, everything. And if you have the opportunity, the privilege to do that, it's a wonderful time. The issue is when you're still on Baby Island and you have a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old. And I think Yael's book confronts that and really helps us to get off of Baby Island while still being great parents. Yes. For some reason, we have parenting books all over the place. But I agree, a
1: wonderful book. Another one, we had the author on the podcast. So if you're interested in that one, go listen to our our interview with Yael. And uh, that was actually an interview I really enjoyed. She was wonderful. So check out the interview. Check out the book. So that brings us to 14 books.
0: But we said 15. And we've got one more book that... We both read for the first time, at least we both read the finished copy of for the first time this year. We'd read prior drafts in the year prior, and that is Do Hard Things by Steve. So, you know, I am probably the most biased person. I think I like Steve more than Hillary likes Steve. Maybe I'm the second most biased person, but um, this is a great book. And if you listen to this podcast, if you like our work, you should just read it. Um, Hopefully, everything that we do is an endorsement for our work, and um, Steve's first solo book since he was nerding out and writing just about running is uh, really a masterful look at all things toughness and how we get the old model of toughness wrong, the Donald Trump, Bobby Knight, um, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, to hell with it all. I'm going to punch you in the face model of toughness, and how today's challenges whether they're social, cultural, business, sports, you name it, really demand a more nuanced understanding of what it means to be tough. One of our most popular articles on the internet this year was a redux from that book where Steve talked about the difference between being really good at pain, suffering, and tolerating discomfort and performing well. And um, that and so many other insights from this book will, will make you better at whatever it is you do. So if you haven't yet, you should read Do Hard Things. That is the 15th book. And if you have read Do Hard Things and you haven't read my book, The Practice of Groundedness, well, that was a really good book too. Didn't come out this year, came out two years ago. But um, in all seriousness, we recommend that you pick up both these books. Our podcast, we don't take sponsorships. We don't take ads. The reason is we want to stay independent and we want to stay community supported And by far the best way that you can support us in our work is to read our books, to listen to our books, to review our books, to share our books. We are all about books and um, none of this would be possible without you all supporting ours. So with that, uh, we'll talk to you all next week. And the reason I'm pausing is I was going to say we'll be back next year, but we'll be back before next year, but it will be a year until we do our favorite episode So as always, we really appreciate your um, recommendations, your suggestions, and um, we will catch you all next week.